This is Greg Grasso, and welcome to Chapter One. Mark Rubenstein came out last year with a uh, novel, Mad Dog House. And uh, he's back with his second novel, Love Gone Mad. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, Greg. All right, good. I've read a number of reviews, and it looks like you got another hit on your hand. So, uh, uh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Love Gone Mad. What, what's going on in this book, Mark? Okay, well, Love Gone Mad is really, it's a thriller, which is uh, what I, I tend to write, and it uh, concerns a, uh, a young heart surgeon named uh, Adrian Douglas, who encounters a uh, very lovely neonatal ICU nurse, Megan Haggerty. They meet in the hospital cafeteria where they both work. They're virtually drawn to each other instantly, and they each have a lot of baggage in their uh, earlier lives, uh, namely in the form of uh, former spouses. The heavier baggage, however, seems to belong to Megan, who has an ex-husband living in Colorado, who takes the, uh, the idea of possessiveness to new heights. And uh, to put it mildly, strange things begin happening when uh, Megan and Adrian begin seeing each other and begin dating. And uh, ultimately, they are being stalked by Megan's ex-husband, and the plot takes various twists and turns uh, where ultimately they have to fight for their lives. And uh, uh, other things happen that involve the, uh, the forensic psychiatry and, and uh, the law. Uh, with a, a trial in the court system, and uh, the novel does take a, a variety of turns, uh, mostly unexpected ones, and uh, for fear of giving away too much of the plot, I don't really want to say any more, other than it explores the, the issue of what can be a thin line between love or obsessive love and madness, and also the idea of uh, the, the kind of mortification that some people feel uh, well, to put it this way, the Jody Arias kind of thing, where someone who has been rejected by a lover really can go on a uh, lethal rampage, uh, as well as other aspects of uh, the forensic world, the courtroom, and in some respects, it's a courtroom thriller as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of baggage, um, uh, Conrad, the uh, the uh, husband, correct? Yes, the ex-husband. Yes, yeah. the ex-husband. Um, is he psychotic, or is this just uh, jealousy and anger? I mean, how does that uh, how does that metam- metamorphosize? Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it metamorphosizes uh, over the course of the novel. I mean, it certainly begins with a level of uh, jealousy on his part because of some feelings he has about his uh, background, his past, which was very traumatic for him. But it really does, uh, at some point, cross the line, and and really, I think. Part of what I tried to explicate in the novel is that when he loses his job out in California, uh, in uh, Colorado, that that really takes him over that line because it's another mortification, it's another blow to his self-esteem, and he really, at that point, I think to use your word, he does become psychotic. He really becomes quite paranoid and begins a thing. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you have a man who's married, has a child with his wife. And then at some point begins to believe that the child is not his. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens then? What if a man suddenly develops the notion, if you will, the paranoid delusion that the child 
who has uh, been born in the marriage, uh, is not his own, but is rather the product of his wife's affair with another man. And this can take us into some very uncharted territory, and uh, in Conrad's case, it does appear to be psychotic. Mm-hmm. Um, you being a psychiatrist, um, I'm sure you've seen this during your practice. What's the threshold? What what um, what actually throws someone over from... Um, from a very angry person, uh, someone who's confused about uh, his life or unhappy with his life. He gets to a certain point. Um, he loses everything. But but from a, uh, physiology, a physiological standpoint, what what causes the psychos- psychosis? Is well, uh, that's a, you know a multi pronged question. Yeah, I it don't is. Know that any, yeah, I don't know that anybody has uh, the final answer on that. And in many respects, the jury is still out in terms of what causes psychosis. I think most psychiatrists and scientists and mental health professionals would agree that there has to be some biologic predisposition. I, I guess we could say that about almost any uh, tendency in any human being. There has to be some basic either biological or constitutional tendency in that regard. But on top of that, if we see somebody who's had a traumatic uh, upbringing, a, a very deprived childhood, one that uh, really is characterized by trauma, and I don't mean just the ordinary using the word rather loosely, the ordinary traumas of childhood, but something that's beyond the pale, that further can set up, uh, set the stage for uh, difficulties down the path. And then when you, you get a what uh, may be viewed as a catastrophic kind of loss, and, and there are various losses we all sustain in life. I mean, one can be the loss of a spouse, uh, the loss of a loved one through death or or divorce, um, the the loss of a job, of course, can be a tremendous stressor for people, and uh, uh, particularly in this economy uh, today, and, and when we see men and women in their 50s and, and even older who are losing their jobs for a variety of reasons and, and really are never going to get back fully in the job market, these are all stressors when, if you combine them, on top of, let's say, a genetic or biologic predisposition, and on top of that, let's say, early childhood difficulties with rejection and uh, those kinds of things, we may see a final common pathway emerge where that person could become psychotic. But there's no way of really predicting who will and who won't. Uh, If we could do that, I I guess in some respects the world would be a safer place. There wouldn't be people like uh, Aaron Alexis and and James Holmes, the Colorado, uh, the Aurora, Colorado shooter, you know. So so, uh, it's a complicated uh, mix of of elements that goes into this scenario that uh, can eventuate in psychosis. Well, so uh, I, I got to stick on medicine for a second here, but sure. so there's a lot of talk about these genetic profiling tests, uh, where you can you can look at the gene structure of a young child now, uh, or they're at least working on this, um, where they can they can show any kind of predisposition to certain uh, psychological tendencies as well as physical tendencies. Um, it, is is that it seems very far fetched to me but if you look at the science it it makes sense um are we ever going to get to the point in society where we're where we're uh, you know at birth we they do a blood test they they run your dna and then 
uh, oh boy, this this guy's going to turn into this type of person because I see a lot of there's a lot of writers, this uh, dystopia writers that that talk about this futuristic uh, um, profiling with genetics. How right you are, Greg. You know, dystopian fantasy novels are a big thing these days. I am amazed when I look on Amazon or when I read reviews and I, I see the number of dystopian writers out there now. Uh, you're really uh, perhaps alluding to uh, the possibility of a big brother type of uh, governmental overseeing of where we go. You know, I, I think almost anything can sound far-fetched in the moment, but if uh, 30 years ago uh, I were to describe to you or anybody would describe uh, the possibilities inherent in, in what we do today technologically in uh, smartphones and uh, the kind of – you remember when we were kids, uh, the, the Dick Tracy wristwatch, uh, yep. you know, where <laughs> it yes. was pure fantasy. It's here. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's here. It, it's it's here. here. I think Google is working on it. I, mm -hmm. You know, uh, mm -hmm. Um, Apple is working on it, and, and uh, there are people talking now about walking around with a pair of glasses on or, or maybe even having it imprinted on your, your, the lens of your eye or possibly on your retina and, mm -hmm. and being able to, to scan and surf the web as you're walking along the street. I mean, my God, we are uh, headed possibly to a dystopia if we survive as a species that long. But, uh, yeah, you know... Uh, it can be frightening, but uh, there, there is no question that the genetics are there. The human genome has been dissected already. Uh, it's only a matter of time uh, before these things become common everyday occurrences. And where they will go societally and socially, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the prediction business, but uh, these are all real possibilities. But but you you as a psychiatrist can see this mass psychosis happening over the over the past few decades. I mean, uh, hell, everybody's into this um, uh, just insane psychotic. Um, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, movies and and writers are writing about this this madness, you know. And in the six in the sixties and seventies. It wasn't that way, and I'm 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 thinking that uh, media um, is is actually uh, uh, titillating to to uh, you know this these generations these young kids coming up. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of negative stuff out there compared to a positive. Uh, there, there is, Greg. There, there is. And, uh, you know, I give you an example, and uh, I, this is nothing new, and uh, I certainly I, I'm not uh, throwing anything that's terribly original at you, but I was watching television last night, and I was anxiously awaiting uh, the penultimate episode of uh, Breaking Bad. And, and uh, before that, an ad came on for Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm saying, my God, th this describes a dystopian world in... And I've read some articles recently that there are people who spend up to eight or ten hours a day and to the uh, extent whereby they neglect much that's going on realistically in their lives because uh, Grand Theft Auto now, they have programs in this thing where it becomes an alternative reality of sorts where you create characters or you... you I, I, I don't know, I've never played these games. But, uh, yeah, there there is just a, a plethora 
of uh, vehicles available now for uh, all kinds of rather crazy technologically driven fantasies and where there's extreme violence and where kids today can be bathed in this stuff, marinating uh, for much of their their uh, days and evenings in this stuff. And, and uh, you do have to wonder what effects is this going to have on kids and, and on our society. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that there are any answers right now, but people are speculating about the possible effects of violence in movies, about the mass media, about uh, technology, and, and uh, even pornography. I, I mean, it's really, we're living in a different age. Uh, the old paradigms are, are rapidly evaporating. Yeah, they are. <clears throat> which um, which concerns me about our mental health system in the United States. Um, I, I work at a local level, at a library. I get transients. I get, um, you know, folks on uh, uh, with mental diseases. Um, uh, some of these guys and gals are, are uh, uh, diligent in taking their meds. Others, you can, you can just spot them a mile away. It's like, oh, boy, oh, he's, sure. he's off today. Um, which concerns me about the you know the whole mental health uh, delivery system in the United States. It's it's uh, it's something that you know we talk about. Um, we've we've but we've gone um, we've gone to a place where uh, society is kind of throwing them back into the world again. I mean I, I just don't I just don't understand um, why we don't see it. And why we don't do anything about it is it is it too big of a problem? Um, you know, I don't know that it's too big, but we we have uh, you know once the what used to be called major tranquilizers came along, mm-hmm. uh, and and there have been a few generations of them now. We now have what are called atypical antipsychotics, which mm-hmm. are used uh, very effectively. One of the the really big ones now is Abilify. It's even advertised on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the 50s, when Thorazine first came out, followed by Stelazine and then Melaril, and now we're into Abilify and, and uh, a number of the others, uh, it, it really did empty out the, the mental institutions, particularly the state institutions, because people's symptoms were vastly improved. I mean, these are almost miraculous drugs. The problem being, however, of course, that when these people feel better, they then stop taking the medication. It it's almost a a natural human tendency when people are taking medication, it helps them, they feel better, then they decide to cut back or cut it out, and then, of course, they relapse right back to where they were. Of course, there are other disorders that are not so amenable to uh, medication treatment and, and where you only get a partial remission or whatever, but the bottom line is, yes, we do have an enormous problem in this country in terms of uh, mental health care and the delivery system. Part of it is because uh, there there is such a thing, believe it or not, as uh, human and individual rights, and and you know the state does not have the the right to mandate that someone be held permanently. Uh, we are not Soviet uh, era, uh, you know USSR, and we don't put people in mental institutions for political reasons or or because we don't like the way they think or whatever. And as soon as they're feeling better, they do get out, and they're supposed to follow up in outpatient departments. Uh, but oftentimes they don't. So we do see this large cadre of homeless, alcoholic people. They're trying to self-medicate by virtue of, you know, street drugs or, or alcohol, and that never works, and, and they are dysfunctional and can get in trouble, and we can get people 
um, such as uh, Aaron Alexis, who you know killed 12 people at uh, the the Navy Yard in Washington. We get the severely troubled uh, people like uh, James Holmes, who who killed and wounded many people in the Aurora, Colorado shooting in a movie theater. And uh, we and and of course we do get the homeless who are just lingering and loitering in parks and and uh, alleyways and and uh, there's oftentimes very little that, that can be done. Uh, I try to address some of that in Love Gone Med, where the whole issue of uh, involuntary hospitalization comes up, uh, specifically for Conrad Wilson, who was the ex-husband who was quite disturbed and and uh, who does represent a menace and a threat. Uh, but as the novel points out, uh, of course, in a fictional way, the, these best efforts can at times be thwarted. Yeah. Yeah. And also from uh, a judicial standpoint, you know, once a uh, mentally ill person, let, let's say he, he, he uh, um, performs a crime, uh, he goes to court, um, it, it seems that it's getting much more complicated in court to prosecute these individuals because of this uh uh i'm off my meds or he went off my med you know his meds and, and yeah. it yeah. seems like this is this is a uh, um an argument that uh, uh that you can get through the court system with um, uh, well it ultimately greg what it boils down to is that there are people who will claim that they are not guilty by reason of insanity i mean that's that's what it really boils down to if you say well i was off my medication i didn't know what i was doing and so forth and so on it really boils down ultimately to its essence of ngri not guilty by reason of insanity and that's where we run into uh... really what has become a myth in this country and it's one to which most people uh... uh subscribe uh, simply because they don't know better and the novel also deals with that uh, you know in reality one quarter of one percent of criminal defendants plead ngri not guilty by reason of insanity however only one quarter of that one quarter of one percent actually succeed in convincing a jury that they are not guilty by reason of insanity so it's really one sixteenth of one percent who do succeed, and the common myth is that, oh, he got off by uh, pleading insanity. He, he took an, an insanity defense and he got off. And, uh, of course, I, I'm sure you know from having read the novel that there's no such thing as getting off by reason of insanity. If you are found to NGRI, you are hospitalized in a state mental institution which is under the wing of the Department of Corrections. And the Supreme Court ruled on this uh, many years ago uh, that... If you are uh, NGRI and you're known as a an NGRI acquittee, you can be held in a mental institution for a longer period of time than would have been the case had you been uh, put into a penal institution by virtue of having been found guilty. So nobody gets away or gets off with a crime because they may have succeeded in with such a plea. Um, however, uh, you know it, it is complicated and and. Uh, uh, I, I deal with some of that in the novel, and, and uh, a number of reviewers have said it was great to not only read a novel, but to learn something as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I've read, uh, um, followed your blogs. Uh, um, uh, you talk, you've been, you do talk about PTSD and how oh, yeah. common oh, yeah. that is these days. And yep. 
They even tried that in the Jody Arias case, although yeah. uh, it was a ridiculous claim because, to begin with, she claimed she could remember nothing about the actual murder itself. Yeah. And, of course, in order to claim PTSD, uh, you, you do nothing but remember because you have flashbacks and nightmares of the horrifying traumatic incident. Uh, it, it's, it's a sine qua non. It, it's the hallmark of PTSD. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and of course they found a psychologist who would testify uh, that she did have PTSD, which was absolutely absurd. And, and the, the jury didn't buy it. And the uh, the prosecutor really made tremendous inroads. He kept he, he kept the psychologist on the witness stand for eight days, and uh, Mr. Martinez did, and and uh, he really basically decimated this psychologist, who was doing what he was doing, I think, uh, for a payday. And uh, you know, that's the that's the horrible part of uh, our adversarial system in in the courts today. And some of that I try to point out in the novel as well. Um, these these expert opinions should really be, uh, as they say in the law, amicus curiae, you know, friends of the court, uh, rather than being hired by one side or the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just seems like everybody's using PTSD as an excuse these days. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, people have been making excuses for bad behavior since, since time began. <laughs> and now it, it, it takes on, in some instances, the mantle of either scientific or psychiatric or psychological plausibility. And, you know, like any uh, kind of, of uh, theory or, or uh, set of uh, arguments, it can be misused and misapplied. And, and we find this very, very frequently uh, with, with certain psychiatric diagnoses. I, I think of all the psychiatric diagnoses that are abused in the legal system, PTSD, in my experience, is number one. Yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, uh, Love Gone Mad, uh, Mark, is a, uh, uh, I think, your, your second psychological thriller. <laughs> um, I, li- I like, uh, I like, uh, the story, I like the realism uh, brought into the characters uh, to, to today's uh, uh, going ons. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, e- you know, it's even scary at some point. And uh, um, your books seem to have a whole lot of mix, which, uh, which really taps into uh, or pushes some buttons in, in uh, everyday, uh, an everyday person. I mean, uh, what do you got going on for the next book? Um, the next book is is I'm going back to the first one, Mad Dog House, uh, mm. and I've, I'm creating. I, I just finished and sent it off for line editing. Uh, it's called Mad Dog Justice. Uh, if you recall anything from Mad Dog House, the the book ends on a somewhat ambiguous note, and a number of reviewers. Uh, pointed out that there was unfinished business, and uh, many reviewers were saying, where's the sequel? And although I had written it as a standalone novel, uh, it struck me after reading a number of reviews, hey, yeah, there, there's a sequel here if I want to take the time and trouble. And it's, it's really not trouble at all. It's really a labor of love. I mean, I just love to write, and I, it, it never dawned on me. It really, in my own way, to me at least, it proved that there is something called the unconscious, because I unconsciously left the door open for a sequel. I had no conscious or willful intention of doing that. So I've just completed the sequel of Mad Dog Justice, which uh, continues the saga of Roddy Dolan yeah, and Dolan, Danny yeah, Burns. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep, Roddy Dolan and Danny Burns yeah. make a return appearance, and that's going to be the last we see of them. It's, it's. Um, I'm putting them to bed and to sleep. You know, you you got to give the baby up at some time and let him go on his own way. And uh, <laughs> well, uh, does the ma- a- does the mafia put them to sleep this time? <laughs> well, I can't tell you. But- the 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 um, the opening scene involves yeah. Danny Burns getting shot. Okay, uh, he does not die, but he does get shot. And and uh, then the question is, who did it? Why? Where is it coming from? And where is this thing going? Uh, you know, the the question I always ask myself when I'm reading a thriller, and the question I always want the reader of anything I write to ask him or, or herself is, oh my God, what? happens now and um to me that's the essence of a thriller what happens next and uh i think it's a residue by the way of childhood i mean when you know when we were kids and we're sitting on on your parents knee and they're reading you a story i i think every child wants to know oh what happens then you know and and that's the element of suspense uh uh, yes, plot counts, character counts, setting counts, all these things count, but it's great to to hold a reader uh, by the neck, so to speak, and, and squeeze just a little bit and, and uh, raise the discomfort level just enough so that the reader starts to sweat a little bit for the protagonist. And, you know, you got to have your protagonist being somebody the reader cares about and worries about. Otherwise, my God, why read it, you know? <laughs> well, well, we're still looking for Jimmy Hoffa, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, 50 years? Give me a break. This has it. He's buried under but, somewhere under, under a giant stadium in, in uh, <laughs> Rutherford, New Jersey or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know. Um, uh, the, the Jersey Meadowlands are, are uh, yeah. filled with bodies i know that yeah yeah that's what i hear <laughs> oh man hey mark it's been a kick again um yeah talking with you um i understand you're doing some uh well kind of greet and meets at some libraries uh, coming up the richfield library in connecticut I, yeah, yes. yeah 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 fantastic uh, i think i think it's next week I, I i haven't looked at my schedule yeah. uh be at westport uh connecticut library tonight yeah. as a matter of fact oh so, wow yeah Staying busy. Actually, I'm getting I'm getting so busy with appearances and signings and so so forth that uh, I'm wondering if I have time to write anymore. Well, but uh, you know, things do it, slow down. Do what your agent tells you. Um, yep, that's what I got to do. You, you got you to toe the mark. You yep. got to toe it, baby. <laughs> Jeez. Well, folks, um, Mark Rubenstein, his second novel, Love Gone Mad. I appreciate it, Mark. It's been uh, it's been fun talking with you again. My yeah. pleasure, Greg. You take care.